0: Well, we just finished uh, six weeks on Psalm 107, and what I wanted to do in these Sundays leading up to Easter is uh, I was talking to a pastor this week, uh, this past week, in fact, a local pastor from the area, and he was saying that since the Good Friday service fell out of tradition in his church, what they tend to do is on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, they preach on the triumphal entry of Jesus, and then on... Easter, they talk about the resurrection of Jesus, and they never have a, a moment where they as a church kind of focus and think about the cross. So he said, I really wish it was, we had like a service in between Palm Sunday and Easter. And I thought, I'm going to do that. <laughs> See, I think he's right. I'm just going to back Palm Sunday up a week. So next week is technically Palm Sunday, but we're going to talk about Palm Sunday this Sunday, because next Sunday I want to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, his dying for us. And then on Easter morning, of course, we want to focus on that great central load-bearing pillar of hope for Christians, the resurrection and what that means. So we're going to be talking about that on Easter morning. Uh, but this morning, even though it's not Palm Sunday, I want to spend time around the beginning of of what would be the most important, significant week in the history of the world, bar none. This is the very beginning of that most momentous and and important week in the history of the world. And to do that, we're going to be hanging out in Luke 19, um, verses 28 through 39. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 19. By the way, all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have an accounting of um, the triumphal entry, and we'll kind of be bouncing around to the parallel accounts, but to kind of give us a springing off place this morning, we're going to be in Luke 19. I'm going to go ahead and read it. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage at Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, Why are you untying the colt? Or rather, I bet it probably sounded like, what are you doing? (laughs) And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God Uh, In all the gospel accounts of the Palm Sunday triumphal entry, there is, I think, if you read them all, and really if you just read the gospel accounts in general, there is throughout all of it an awkward tension between what the people want from Jesus on the one hand and what Jesus wants to give them on the other When we take all the available textual evidence together, what emerges is that people seem to want a lot of things. They're living in the midst of a great discontentedness, and they have come to attach a lot of hopes and dreams to Jesus. They want a better lot in life, they want a kingdom and a king that represents their interests. They're tired of being exploited and shoved down and wronged, and on the business end of the courts, they're just really tired of it. They want deliverance and a deliverer. They want an end to grinding poverty. They want abundance and health and justice. But their fallen imaginations And really, isn't that a picture of what we see all around us in the news? Look at all the discontent in our culture today. Look at all the things that people want. And I'll tell you this, I don't think they're altogether wrong. I think a lot of people are yearning towards good things. But they just have come to attach all of those fallen desires on the wrong sort of things. And here we see that these folks they all these things that they want their fallen imagination seemingly can only conceive of these things materializing in a small earthbound kind of way they are seemingly blind to the enormous riches power and potential that Jesus represents Jesus, for his part, wants to give the people these things, but in much greater measure, in a better and more abiding way than they can imagine. And it's this disconnect between what the people want from Jesus and what Jesus wants to give them that accounts for the strange way that this momentous week in the history of the world begins and ends. In the midweek email, I kind of put it out this way, uh, this past week. On the Sunday before being crucified, Jesus enters Jerusalem a hero, the great hope of the people. And on Friday, he would leave the city condemned, rejected, and despised. Jesus enters Jerusalem being carried on the back of a young donkey. But he would exit the city just a few days later as a beast of burden himself, carrying what? A cross on his own back. On Sunday, they cheer Jesus for the fact that he called Lazarus out of a tomb, and on Friday they cheer as Jesus himself is killed and placed into one. On Sunday, they had excitedly declared him to be their king, and on Friday, they would seek to kill him, and on the basis of what charge? That he said he was their king. This week will culminate in a very strange sort of coronation. We're going to talk about this next Sunday, when a blood-stained crown of thorns, that symbol of the fall, is pressed rudely onto the head of Jesus. What a strange week. How strange is it to compare this Sunday when Jesus arrives in town to a rock star's reception and Friday when he's escorted out to Golgotha, the place of the skull. How do we account for this? Throughout the gospel accounts, people are enthusiastic about Jesus when He does the things they want Him to do, and when He says the things they like Him to be saying, and when He is to them what they want Him to be. But when He makes plain the deeper significance of His actions... When he makes explicit and clear the deeper, more essential meaning of his words, they often respond by becoming offended. And here's why, I think, at least in part for some of them, because what Jesus says and does and what he explains does not align with the hopes and dreams they had attached to him. That's not why I came. It's a bit like when we were talking either last Sunday or the Sunday before that about the paralyzed man who was lowered through the roof, remember? His friends brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Why? Because they wanted him to be healed. But when the paralyzed man is lowered in front of Jesus, the first thing he said is, your sins are forgiven. And I'm willing to bet in that moment When Jesus gave this man something wonderful, their first thought probably, and the Bible doesn't say this, so I'm going out on a limb. Forgive me if I'm stretching a little bit, reading between the lines. But if I was one of his friends who had gone to all the trouble, hauled him up on the roof, torn the roof apart, lowered him down, here he is in front of the miracle worker, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I would have thought to myself, that's great, but the man's paralyzed. Can't you do something about that? As though that's a greater need. (laughs) How small is my mind? How small is my imagination? How low a concern do I have about sin that I think temporary paralysis is a worse travail than eternal sin? And so I do think that when people had some cherished hopes and dreams attached to Jesus and he refused to become who they wanted him to be and they became offended this is what accounts for his rock star reception and ending in his crucifixion what happened in the middle of that is Jesus came to do what Jesus came to do and it did not line up with what they wanted Their preference for the Jesus they imagined and hoped for caused them to turn their nose up at the real Jesus when he shows up. Take this crowd of excited people welcoming him as the Messiah as he enters Jerusalem. Just a week later, some of the same crowd is going to chant, crucify him, and we want Barabbas instead of this guy. And and what happened was they were blinded by a hoped-for Jesus That caused them to see no beauty or excellence in Jesus as he truly was. And this led them to tragically walk away from what was infinitely valuable and precious in preference to an earthbound dream. They trade the eternal for what is temporary and earthbound. And the trading of the infinitely valuable for just a little bit more of this earth comes from not seeing Jesus very clearly. Uh, We return to this guy often as a handy example of this truth, but the thief on the cross next to Jesus, there were two thieves. And one of the thieves, we're told in the Bible, railed against Jesus. And he did see a Jesus, and he believed that Jesus had the power to do amazing things. He believed, apparently, according to his own words that he spoke, that Jesus had the power to deliver him from off the cross. But really, that was all he wanted from Jesus. His all-consuming desire was for Jesus to grant him a few more days under the sun. The thief's hopes were not trained on deliverance from the sin that had brought him to the cross, but merely from the cross itself. And his heart longed for more days on the earth, not an infinite number of days in paradise. What's really strange about that man was that his mind was so consumed with the desire to live longer that he was blind to the fact that Jesus could, had the capacity to make him live forever. He so desperately wanted to live just a little bit longer that he saw no value in what Jesus could offer to make him live Forever. And again we come back to this idea that this man who cursed him after that had such small ambitions. Judas was the same. Judas was a man who I think of all the disciples understood Jesus the most clearly in terms of what he intended to do. When Jesus spoke very plainly to his disciples about his plans to go to Jerusalem and to die on a cross, I think the other disciples probably believed or at least hoped that Jesus was speaking in a veiled way like when he did when he spoke in parables, and that he didn't mean what he was really saying, not literally anyway. But I think Judas believed Jesus to be speaking plainly. He didn't misunderstand him. He understood him all too clearly, and he was disappointed. Judas wanted Jesus to be somebody else, wanted him to do something else. And when Jesus showed up with his real plan, he was disappointed, disillusioned. I think there are many people who are motivated to follow Jesus because they perceive that there will be some this worldly benefit in doing so. Their focus and concern is totally wrapped up and finding comfort and security in the here and now. This is what they're all about. And tragically, they're so blinded by their love of comfort, their love of this world, that when Jesus fails to produce a life of material abundance or continued health or security or freedom from hardship, they walk away from the bread of life which would have satisfied those longings perfectly and eternally. Philippians 3.19 says of such people, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. They are like so many Esau's trading their birthright for a bowl of stew. After Jesus resurrected Lazarus, From the grave, and the other gospel accounts make the connection between Lazarus and the triumphal entry more explicit. John, I think, draws the best connection. Um, But after Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the grave, a couple things happened. One public interest and excitement in Jesus, as well as speculation that Jesus could be the long awaited Messiah, this grew to an all time fever pitch. Uh, The resurrection of Lazarus was wonderfully public. It was witnessed by a lot of people. It was witnessed not only by his own disciples, but by his critics. It was clear, irrefutable proof that Jesus was the resurrection and the life, that he was the Messiah. And when this happened, word spread like wildfire And this culminates in Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And again, John, in a parallel account of the triumphal entry, ties the crowd that greeted Jesus as he entered Jerusalem directly to the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. He says this, John, in his gospel, "...the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness." The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So Jesus raises a dead man from the grave. Dead long enough, he'd begun to smell, according to the gospel. Four days. Began to stink in that tomb. And Jesus called him forth. And this is a mind, obviously, a mind-blowing, crazy miracle. And so this crowd has come out to greet him. And Luke, in his gospel, captures for us this moment when this Jesus, who had so captured everyone's imagination and had become so central to their hopes, their dreams, he arrives in Jerusalem at the beginning of, again, what would be this most remarkable and significant week. It says, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God With a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Uh, I think this is so far back in time, and it's in a culture that's so distant and removed from our own. It is really hard for us living as we do in 2023 as Americans to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who greeted Jesus coming into Jerusalem. There is no doubt from what the Bible records about what they thought was happening in this moment. This is nothing less. This is nothing less in their mind than the fulfillment of all those messianic promises. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the back of a colt, just as the prophets foretold. In, for example, in Zechariah 9, "'Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey.'" I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Guys, this is the birth of the new order. As Jesus is riding into town, everyone celebrating thinks that the new order kingdom is about to be born i think the air would have been electric with excitement their faith in god is on is has reached an incredible crescendo pitch with jesus coming into jerusalem i mean they would have been filled with religious fervor expectation i think you could have felt it in the air what's going to happen next what's he going to do When he gets in there, is he just going to call down fire from heaven and the Roman praetorium is going to burn up? What's going to happen? They had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. What else could he do? They were wild, I think, with excitement and anticipation. Nobody knew exactly what was coming, but there was excitement in the air, tension, no doubt. Something big was about to go down. Jesus was coming into town just as the prophets had foretold. And now, in one sense, the disciples were right. Jesus was the Messiah. Nothing they said was wrong. He was the fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises and prophecies, He was the King of the Jews. He would be the king of the entire world, just as the prophecies foretold. However, what they hoped Jesus would seize and unleash, what they hoped Jesus would bring into existence was not any different from what Satan had offered Jesus during the temptation. You might remember this from Luke 4. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Satan had said to Jesus, All these kingdoms can be yours. The whole world can be yours. And as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem... His disciples really hoped that He would do that. <laughs> that He would make real that earthbound reality of a kingdom centered in Jerusalem. One of the words we find in the multiple accounts of the triumphal entry is Hosanna. Uh, if you're not familiar with biblical, uh, how the history of how your Bibles came to you, most of the Bible is written in either Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament. There's also some Aramaic in there. And I was explaining this to the hide-and-seek club, actually, a couple of weeks ago. But Hosanna is one of those words that just really doesn't translate cleanly into English. So rather than trying to translate it into words in English, they just left it in your Bibles as Hosanna. And essentially what it means, it's really kind of a desperate cry, uh, it means something like save now, save please, save without delay. Like I imagine if you fell into a well and you were trapped and you were to cry up to, through the opening, you know, Hosanna would capture the spirit of that cry. Get me out of here. Save now, save please, Hosanna. And so in the beginning, when we were singing the song, Hosanna in the highest, That's the idea, that they are crying out to Jesus, save us, bring about deliverance and change right now. When we get into town, make it happen. Hosanna. It's a desperate cry. But again, they want good things from Jesus, but they seemingly can only conceive of those things materializing in this small, earthbound kind of way. Now the book of Revelations tells us of the final fulfillment of Palm Sunday on the last day. It says this, Revelation 7, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's a picture of people from every nation, every language gathered around the throne. It was true that Jesus would be king of the world, but their imagination was too small. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem with the multitudes praising Jesus and waving palms was like a sneak peek of what was to come in glory. It was a foreshadowing of that promised day in heaven when God gathers home all his children. But still, as we explore further, we see that their understanding was deeply flawed. If the disciples' hopes for that day, over 2,000 years ago, had been fulfilled, our hope in Christ would be dashed today. If Jesus had entered Jerusalem in the way that the disciples were hoping that he would, that would mean that you and I would never set foot in the New Jerusalem. Why? Well, because there had to be the cross. Without the sacrifice on the cross, there would have been no victory over the real enemy. And that's what the disciples did not yet understand. They did not yet see clearly enough. Their vision of the coming kingdom was too small. Uh, one of the most perplexing things when we look at Jesus of the Bible is that he had the power to do so much. For example, when we read the gospel accounts, he heals the blind. He makes the lame to walk. He brings dead people out of the grave. He feeds a crowd of thousands. With so much there's an abundant amount left over, And he brings that food into existence out of nothing. And one of the questions that we have to pause and ask ourselves if he could heal some, why not all? If he could feed some, why not alleviate all world hunger? Is he limited in power? Is he limited in compassion? Is he finite in some way? The answer to all these questions is no. He's not limited. And He did come to end hunger and blindness and lameness and injustice once and for all, forever. But again, if… So the question could be asked, wouldn't it have been better if instead of dying to destroy the reality of sin and its effects in the world, wouldn't it have been better if he had just stayed alive and countered the effects of sin generation to generation all the way down to our current time? Couldn't Jesus have just stayed alive and healed everyone forever? Couldn't Jesus have just stayed alive and fed all the hungry people? Couldn't Jesus have seized the throne and effected a worldwide kingdom where he would preside as king and make justice reign from the center of his power in Jerusalem? Couldn't he have made a true human government that worked right? He could have done all these things and more, and he chose not to. Why? Why? The answer is, he was not interested in making you more comfortable in your state of separation from God. Sin is the problem. All these other things are the presenting issue of a deeper problem. Jesus came to address the disease, not the symptoms. That's what he did when he came to the earth the first time. The problem is not my poverty. The problem is not my disease. The problem is not any of these things. Those are the presenting issues of the deeper problem, which is the fall, which is sin. There's that scene in the miraculous, uh, in the miracles of Jesus. John records eight miracles in his gospel account. We studied through those a couple years ago. Do you remember when he heals the man who was born, who was an invalid, I think for 38 years? He's by the pool of Bethesda. Jesus comes in there, we're told that the place is crowded with sick people. Jesus heals one and then leaves very quickly because we're told in that account there were so many sick people there that after he heals one, there would have been a great uproar, heal me, heal me. And one of the questions is, well, why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he do that? If there's so many sick people there, why not heal all of them? It's a very troubling question when you read the account. And the answer is, guys, he follows up with the guy later in the temple. He finds the guy later. And he says, sin no more lest something worse happen to you. What's worse? Again, I asked this a couple weeks ago, citing the same passages. What's worse is the wrath that comes from sin. There is something worse. Jesus came to address that great problem. And the truth of it is, He wants you. God wants to be in relationship with you. And so when we say to God, but couldn't you just take away all the bad stuff that comes from my rebellion? We're essentially saying, can't you make me more comfortable in my state of separation from you? It's almost like saying, I don't really want to come home to you, but can't you make me comfortable where I am? And Jesus came to bring us home. And in order to bring us home, he has to take away our sin. In Luke nine twenty two, Jesus had told them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And then in verse 44, he told them, Let these words sink into your hearts, into your ears, I'm sorry. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But then in the very next verse, we are told, But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now, I'm aware, as I stand up here this morning, that I'm talking to people who do not want to die. And who want to be happy. And the story of that first Palm Sunday functions as a cautionary tale for anyone who would seek happiness or life in anything other than Jesus. In Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13, we read this. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What are these two evils? Well, one is that they've forsaken God, and the other is that they're trying to satisfy their God-given thirst by pouring their efforts into the digging of a broken cistern. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis delivers a profound insight into what the Bible describes in a beautiful, poetic sort of shorthand as these broken cisterns. Lewis says, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, it's all the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And look as exhibit A at the empty-handed desire of these Pharisees. How did they look on Lazarus, alive and well, and feel anything but wonder and hope and excitement? How can anyone, I mean, imagine if we went to the cemetery where somebody was put in the ground four days ago. And somebody raised that person up out of the grave and they appeared whole and healthy before us and feel anything but awestruck wonder and excitement. It says, be, I mean, be appalled, be shocked, be utterly desolate at this remarkable demonstration of evil that turns away from the fount of living waters and began scheming and designing this broken cistern of a plan to kill Lazarus and Jesus both. That's what the Pharisees did. They looked at Lazarus alive and well and Jesus who had made it happen, and they decided they were going to put these guys to death. And this twin turning away from God as one's treasure and turning towards something else in the hope that it will be better is the essence of evil. And we arrive at this definition through reverse engineering. Repentance is what? Repentance is to turn away from evil and return to a full embrace of God and godliness. However, these Pharisees, when they're confronted by the undeniable proof of Jesus' power and goodness in the raising of Lazarus from the dead, they do not repent by turning away from their broken cisterns, they continue on their disastrous, joy-killing trajectory by turning away from the fount of living waters. And they try to satisfy their God-given thirst through their own schemes to exalt themselves. And this reminds us of Romans 1, 22 through 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. This trade-off, in which the glory of God is exchanged for the glory of man, is at the root of every unhappiness. It's at the root of every bitterness and strife and envy. Every evil thing that's harbored and acted upon flows from this evil root. In John 12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus bases his argument in these verses by appealing to our rational self-interest. Again, you all want to live. Rational self-interest is what causes you to meet your own needs, to care for yourself, to pursue happiness, and to avoid pain. And ultimately, Jesus argues, you want to keep your life eternally, don't you? What if the only way? And I repeat, the only way to keep your life was to lay it down. As I already noted earlier, I'm speaking to a room full of people who do not want to die. And when we listen carefully, we see that Jesus approves of our desire not to lose our lives. He bases his appeal to us on that. He's urging us to act in our own best interests. So he says, listen up, all who marveled and celebrated the amazing sight of Lazarus raised from the dead. Listen up, all of you who love life and fear death. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. When we go back to that first Palm Sunday and we see all these people who had, had so many hopes and dreams attached to Jesus, who would later sacrifice him, what we see is that they loved their life in this world. They wanted things to happen in this world. And if you're in the habit of marking up your Bibles, I encourage you to underline or highlight those words from John 12 in this world. Jesus is for you. He's rooting for you to find life and happiness that will never fade, fail, or desert you. And here he is telling us how self-denial in this world will reap huge, worthwhile dividends in the next. Jesus himself modeled this for us. He was speaking of his own coming death on the cross when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Hebrews twelve two it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is the greatness of the future joy that gives us the capacity to, de- to deny ourselves lesser joys in this world. However, it's noteworthy and important that God ultimately is leading us by our desires. Of Jesus, it says, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He is not a disapproving scold. Our God is the God of festival joy. And by calling us to deny ourselves the fleeting pleasures of sin, God is encouraging us to fight for a deeper pleasure that can only be found in him. He never asks us to deny ourselves more of Him. But the main thing I want us to see about Palm Sunday, and I'll just close with this brief thought, is that He went to Jerusalem on purpose. (laughs) That's the main thing to see here. His coming to Jerusalem... He went there and he stated it very plainly in advance to his disciples why he was going there. I'm going to that place to die. They're going to arrest me. They're going to crucify me. And that's why I'm going there. Jesus is sovereign. He is in control. And when it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Do you know what the joy that was in front of him that caused him to go to Jerusalem and endure the cross, well, it was you. It was you that he had in mind when he went there. It was for you that he went to Jerusalem, and he went there on purpose. He was not tricked. Nothing happened to him that he didn't will, and what he willed for himself was the cross. This is an amazing fact. Everyone who greeted him as he came into Jerusalem may have had a wildly imperfect idea about what he was doing. But Jesus himself was sovereign and in control. And in his freedom, what he was choosing for himself was death on a cross. And he did that because of you, because of our need for him. Here's the gospel the gospel is very simple. And it's at the heart of this most amazing week in the history of the world. The gospel is, again, one of those words um, that we find in the Bible and in Christian language that comes to us as a transliteration out of the Greek. Gospel comes from a Greek word meaning simply the good news. Here's the good news. And maybe I'm speaking it to a people who are desperately in need of some really good news. Not good news that has a of sheet of footnotes at the bottom and hypotheticals and question marks and maybes. No, this is good news you can take to the bank. It's real. It's true. Before there can ever be good news, there has to be bad news. And sin is a horrible reality that hangs over everything in this fallen world. Mankind sinned. In the original sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden... We're all stained with that first sin, but we've done plenty of it on our own. Sin is just simply this. It's anything that, that flies wide of the mark. God in His Word gave us standards, told us what He's like, told us what is right and good and true. There are commands to do good things, and there are commands not to do bad things. And many of the good things I should do, I fail to do. And many of the bad things I shouldn't do, I've done plenty. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's true for me, for you, for all of us. We're all sinners. And if I asked you, should evil be punished? Should somebody who does a work of great wickedness be punished? We would all say yes. And then if I ask, well, have you done anything wicked? We would all, if we're honest, have to say yes. I've done wicked things. Should you be punished? Yes. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, but the wages of sin is death. But... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I've explained many times, a wage is something you earn. It's something you deserve. The wages of sin, what you've earned, what you've deserved, what we all have earned and deserved because of our rebellion is death. But (laughs) doesn't that word just explode into the middle of that sentence with hope, like a lifeline? The wages of sin is death. You've earned it. You've deserved it. It's coming to you. But the free gift of God, the free gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And of course, we all intuitively grasp the difference between a gift and a wage, don't we? A wage is something that you owe me because I did it and now you have to give me my paycheck. But a gift is not tied to my merit. A gift has more to do with the spirit and the person of the giver than the worthiness of the recipient. You might give a gift to somebody who's wildly unworthy. And that's true of the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin, what we've earned, what we've all earned is death. But God wants to give you a gift. Jesus was going into Jerusalem to make delivery of an amazing gift to all humanity. Romans 5.8, another verse that means an awful lot to me personally, says this, but God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While you were a sinner, Christ died. In other words, God doesn't say you have to clean yourself up and make yourself worthy of this gift that I'm giving you. He says no such thing to fallen humanity. But God demonstrates His own love to you and that while you were yet sinners, that's when He died for you. And now the promises of Scripture belong to you. Romans 5.1 says that all of those that were justified by faith you're made right with God by your faith in Him and what Jesus did for you. And Romans eight one says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans ten nine says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's an amazing promise. Here's the great thing I think that God is offering. If you are here with us this morning and you have not yet put your trust in Jesus for salvation, or maybe you're listening this, to this online, maybe you fell asleep watching YouTube video of one thing and you woke up at 2 a.m. and I'm talking to you right now. I don't know what happened. <laughs> Do you guys ever have that happen on YouTube? I was just talking to Jerry Castoni about this yesterday. Sometimes I fall asleep watching YouTube and I wake up at 2 in the morning I'm like, what is this? So, maybe this is out there on YouTube somewhere, and you're waking up at 2 a.m. and I'm talking to you. Here's the wonderful thing. Here's the great good news I want to share with you this Easter season God loves you. Sure, you've sinned, you have broken his commands, you are a rebel against the throne but he wants to give you a gift. Guys, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable, but God's not a liar. And in his word, he has made promises to you that are expansive and generous, kind, full of grace. And by grace, I mean he wants to give you something you don't deserve. This is an amazing gift. And this is at the heart of this beginning of this week. And I don't want... uh, The reason why we have to start with the truth that so many misunderstood Jesus is that they were content to beg him for spare change when he wanted to give them millions They just wanted more of this earth. They wanted less pain, not an end to pain forever and always. They wanted a little more justice in the courts right now, not a day when a righteous judge would set all things straight forever. They wanted to live a little bit longer, not live forever. That wasn't at the center of their heart's emotions. They wanted an earthbound king, not a spiritual king who would reign forever. They wanted a deliverer from Rome. They didn't want to be freed from, out from under the oppression of sin and death. They saw their, their imaginations were so small. Their vision of what was on offer from Jesus was so limited that they didn't see the incredible, good, generous thing that was on offer to them as a free gift. And it's a shame, and you don't have to be blinded to it. I mean, sometimes I sit in my office and I just pray, God, give me words to open one person's eyes. I'm so limited in my abilities as a communicator, God. Won't you just please stab one heart wide awake? to the reality that they're living in the midst of earthbound hopes. And that's the sum of it. That's the sum of their life. Give me a little more of this earth. What a waste. What a shame. And Jesus came into Jerusalem, and when he said, I want to give you much more than that, they said, well, that's not what we want. That's not what we want. And your jaw just kind of hits the floor. What do you mean? What do you mean? Fellow human beings, do you know who you are? Do you know what God is offering you today? Do you understand what the Bible means when it talks about pleasures at the right hand of God forevermore? Do you understand that Jesus came to bring an end to that which ails you, (laughs) to deliver you once and for all out of bondage to sin and death? I hope you can come back and continue this conversation through Easter. I hope you can come back next week when we talk about the cross and what Jesus did for you there. And when we talk on Easter morning about the promise of the resurrection, he is a wonderful God, and I pray that he does stab some hearts wide awake to the reality of these things during this precious season and this time of year. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, and there he was not taken advantage of or tricked he was not things were not really and truly done to him in the way that some people imagine he was in control he allowed himself more than he allowed himself he went there for the very purpose of the cross God as it says and as we quoted last week God, your thoughts are not our thoughts and your ways are not our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than our ways. And the thought of a God coming to the earth as one of us and going purposefully to Jerusalem to die on a cross, God, that is a way that is so far above my own ways. God, that is a thought that is not at all like how I think. But God, you've opened our eyes to see the beauty of this thing, the excellence, the necessity of it. And God, maybe there's one listening right now to this message who has not put their trust in Jesus for salvation. But God, maybe over the course of our conversation this morning, you have given, you've opened the eyes of their faith to see and believe the truth of the gospel. And if so, God, I'm just going to pray a very simple prayer right now. And even though they're not praying it, it can be their prayer. Father, I, I'm a sinner. I've sinned. I've broken your laws. And Father, I know that the wages of my sin is death. God, I know that I'm deserving of wrath and punishment. I've behaved wickedly, and you're a righteous judge. But God, I believe your promise that even though that's what I've earned and deserved, that you amazingly want to offer me a free gift, a gift of salvation. And Father, I I accept that gift. Oh God, with both hands. God, I want that gift. God, I need a Savior. Because I'm a sinner, God, I can't save myself. I need one who is without sin to take my place under your punishment. And God, I believe that that's what Jesus did for me, that he died on the cross. He died the death I should have died. He took all my sins onto himself, and he gave me his righteousness. Father, I believe that. I receive it. I'm grateful for it. Now, Father give me your Holy Spirit. Father, send your Holy Spirit to live in me. And God, help me to live differently, transform me, give me new desires in my inner world. And Father, I invite you to make of me a new creation, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5. Father, I'm so grateful for salvation in Jesus. Help me to follow Jesus as my Lord from this day until he returns. Help me to see him clearly so that I might follow him truly. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.